everyone, and welcome to our 26th episode of A Girl Like Me Live, which is a live interactive series where we sit down every month from with people from the community to discuss different health-related topics regarding women in HIV. Um, today, I'm so honored to be joined by Tonya Petit. Um, I'm going to allow her to introduce herself a little bit more, but could you give us an introduction and some of your affiliations and how did you come to know the Well Project? Oh, that's a story. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I am uh, currently on faculty at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Um, the majority of my work is around research um, related to transgender health and HIV. And what else? I'm a clinician. I'm a PA. I've been practicing, providing care for people living with HIV for the past 25 years. And I came to know the Well Project through uh, Don Averett, who was a friend that I met when I was running an AIDS hotline for women in Atlanta. And she was working. Oh, my God. What was the name of the organization? It's now the AIDS Survival Project, I think. Um, and we became friends and shared a passion and when she started the Well Project, I was excited to help it become whatever it's going to become. Oh my goodness! Even I didn't even know all of it. That's decent. Um, so today we are here to talk about advanced and meaningful inclusion of all women in HIV research and clinical trials. Poof, that's a lot to say. <laughs> but, and because it's a lot to say, it sounds intimidating. Like research and clinical trials sounds like something that would not be in my vocabulary every day or anything that I would be a part of. Like what even, what are clinical trials? What is research? Is that a big question? That's a great question. Because um, research is so expansive. I think when most people hear research, they think somebody's going to be taking their blood or injecting them with something. And that's what research is limited to. But it's really um, a process of answering questions, really, um, and doing it in a systematic way. That's all it is. Um, and clinical trials are a way of answering questions that involve giving people some sort of, providing some sort of intervention to some set, a group of people and not to another set of people and then comparing outcomes between those, those people. So we have fancy words for pretty simple things. <laughs> and that's what I'm coming to learn a lot more, the more that I do this work. Um, I got an opportunity to with you amongst a bunch of other folks to the WRI last year, the Women's Research Initiative, which is a program of the Well Project that's been going on for quite some time. And we got to hone in on this topic of advancing research, well, including all women in um, research and clinical trials. And it was during your presentation there, you presented with Araya and that was such a powerful moment for me. Like, you know, just thinking of experiences that might not be my own and how that impacts 
how, you know, the research that we get and the decisions that we're able to make because we haven't studied enough about it. So I wanted to, you know, enter that little caveat because I definitely learned a lot there. Um, I want to hear from you, though. Can you provide a brief overview of what the WRI meeting addressed and why was that an important topic? Yeah, um, it's an important topic because women are important and knowing um having as much information as we can about how women can stay healthy is, I don't know, a top priority. Uh, the, the meeting was actually really awesome. They always are. The WRI meetings are always amazing. Um, and this one really focused on why it's important to include women in clinical trials and other research, um, what it means that we haven't and what, what it means that we don't know because we haven't included women but also focused on specific groups of women that have been left out of research. Trans women have been left out of a lot of research or miscategorized um, in research. Women who sell sex, women who use drugs, pregnant women, women who are breastfeeding, um, all women who are in our society and deserve to be healthy, but we don't have the information that we need on how they respond to medications, what their experiences are like living with HIV, how to reduce their risk for acquiring HIV, all of those things. Um, because often the rules around who can be in a clinical trial keep those women out. And to even like get that far, like the rules to get in, I don't even know how to get to a clinical trial. Like it sounds like somewhere I'm supposed to travel to so like a, a meetup spot. And how do you find these meetup spots? How do you find the opportunity to participate in research? That is a great question. Um, if you live in a city with a, um, a research medical school, I think it's easier um, because they will often be you know, out trying to recruit people to be in research studies. And you can ask your healthcare provider like, hey, do you know about any studies that are nearby? I think women who live in smaller towns will often need to travel to get to those sites to participate. But if they're studies that really are working hard to recruit diverse people and include women, often they will have money to pay for travel to the research studies. So it's not like it has to come you know, directly out of somebody's pocket all of the time to get to a research study. Um, there is also, I can say, like, there's also a website called clinicaltrials.gov, and it lit. Did you know this? Yeah, no, it, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it lists all of the research studies that are funded by the U.S. government and some that are not funded by the U.S. government. So you could, you, it has a little search bar like Google does. And you can put in a topic that you're interested in, and it'll show you all the studies that are ongoing that are clinical trials. And you can look and see if there's anything you're interested in. Oh, I love something like Google. Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to pop Michelle's question up. So Michelle says, women living with HIV are not setting the agendas for meaningful research that should then be implemented in the standards of our care. Can you speak to some strategies that you can suggest that will level the playing field in research? That is an excellent question and I think more of a comment, right? So you talked about CC wanting to figure out how to get involved in clinical trials, but I think it's the responsibility of those of us who do research to make sure that we are 
from the very beginning in communication with women living with HIV about what research questions we should be asking and what are ways that are acceptable to the community to answer those research questions. And that has to start from before we even send in our applications for grant funding and things like that. And there's organizations like the Well Project, like WRI, like PWN, where researchers can connect with those organizations and ask, you know, how can we engage with the women in our community to make sure we're asking the right questions and answering them in the right way? Absolutely. Yes, um, I love this. Sandra says she's currently on the HIV study at mm -hmm. Mass General. So it's some folks are finding out about it. Some folks are engaging and that's great. I always, um, I'm so grateful for those who have come before me because I know that medication wasn't always, you know, to the point of this. I've been positive 14, almost 15 years. At the beginning, I was taking more than one pill a day. Now I'm down to, you know, the one pill a day. And I just think of all the people who before me signed up or were a part of research studies and just how important that is that we are able to be a piece of, you know, the, the research, everything that works on, you know, a white man might not work on me the same way. And the mm -hmm. only way that we'll know that is if we are a part of it. So thank you, Sandra, and other folks who have taken, you know, the opportunity to be a part of. Um, I'm going to jump to a next point, and that is, in your opinion, what factors contribute to the lib limited knowledge about our interests and important aspects of women's experiences of HIV? Yeah, I think honestly, I'm going to be, get a little historical, right? So at the beginning of the uh, HIV epidemic in the U.S., there was almost an exclusive focus on men, on men who had sex with other men. And there were women living with HIV then, but nobody noticed or paid attention. And it was really the activism of women that forced the government to pay more attention to change the definition for AIDS that led to more attention to women. And I think that's still, that limited view is still what keeps researchers often not thinking about including women. And I also think there's this misperception that it's harder to enroll women in clinical trials um, because Women have a lot of responsibilities often. If they are parents, they are usually the primary caregiver. Um, they might be working and trying to take care of their family. Um, it might be more difficult for them to make space in their lives for you know, the standard way that clinical trials have been done. But the WELL Project was part of a study some years ago called GRACE, which was basically demonstrating it is completely possible to enroll women in clinical trials if you create the studies in ways that are welcoming and appropriate for women. So we know that it's possible. It's about prioritizing and doing it and understanding that half the population is women, more than half the population is women, right? So you can't like not have research findings that apply to a whole half of the population. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Leiden, he wrote, it is the research, it is the research has helped the progress of wellness of women living with HIV. Um, 
definitely. But then we are still able to identify like some gap areas. I heard you mention breastfeeding earlier. And I can tell you from personal experience, not even my experience, but personally knowing not having it research has been to a detriment for a lot of people in the community because that is what ironically providers are leaning on to, you know, to help coach us, not coach, I don't want to say advise us on how we are to feed our children and with the research just not being done on certain populations because the topic maybe hasn't been as much of a priority to others as it has been to the actual community it has definitely has shown that it has huge effects. Um, we spoke a little bit about a woman living with HIV, like if she wanted to get involved in research, you gave us some great recommendations. So I'm going to try to repeat them to see if I got it. Because if I got it, then maybe somebody else got it. So there's the clinicaltrials.gov. We can go there and type in and see what research studies are happening, clinical trials are happening at the time. Um, it could be a little easier for those of us that live in bigger cities because maybe the recruiters for the study, I'm not sure what they're called, maybe mm -hmm. they will be, um, you know, more accessible or will be more accessible to them. But even if you do live somewhere where they're not necessarily recruiting as heavily, there may be ways for you to still become involved. And that's where, it's, that's where I would use the search engine. Maybe find if there's a study that I could participate in that would accommodate my participation. Okay, I think I got that. Um, how important is community engagement when it comes to advancing meaningful inclusion of all women? in HIV research and clinical trials? I think it's critical. Um, you know, I mentioned that women have often been overlooked because researchers have been so focused on men. And um, I think the ethical review boards that have to look at um, how a study is designed and who is in the study have often been so worried about um, whether a woman may or may not get pregnant, whether a woman is breastfeeding and, and protecting um, children that they haven't heard the perspectives of women who are like, this is our lives. Like we're going to, you know, women will often have babies. Women will often be breastfeeding and we need the information. So this protection is actually exclusion. And without engaging with the community, researchers might not even think about that. It's critical. Absolutely. And I've, I feel extremely fortunate and grateful to be in a space where I can see where the advocacy and activism from community and organizations can kind of like help, you know, push and get the word out and start demanding like, yo, we want to know. And sometimes it seems like it takes a while. It can take a while. But, you know, just keep using your voice. Keep pushing. Yeah. Um. I wanted to go back to this point of oh, the Well Project. We did share the GRACE study that you were talking about. It's so wonderful to know that this organization has a history of being, you know, not only talking to talk, but walking it as well. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, we have our community advisory board and each um, a girl like me live, we get input from them. So see if there's anything that they want to make sure is discussed and brought up. So this one 
point was brought from Asanya trailer. Um, she says, have opportunities been explored to include women living with HIV as part of the research team? So not just mm. part of the study, but part of the team. Thank you so much for raising that. Um, I, I think that people often don't think about that too, you know, that women living with HIV can be researchers. They can get PhDs, they can get MDs, they can go <laughs> be part of the team. And even if they don't have, you know, all of that schooling, you can be on the Institutional Review Board, which is a, a board that reviews all studies to make sure that they're ethical and be a voice for inclusion of women living with HIV in studies. They can be hired as part of the research team in whatever role, sometimes as you know, research assistants, sometimes as people who, you, you mentioned recruiters, people who know the community can, can tell people about the study and invite them to participate. There's all sorts of ways that women living with HIV can be involved in research depending on their interest. And yes, being hired to do that work and paid for their labor is completely, is really important, I think, and demonstrates a commitment to making sure that women with, living with HIV are included appropriately. I loved it, Bridget. She says, lived experience is experience and training can be done. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, when I asked that question earlier about like, what is research? I had an epiphany during a call one day because we sat with some researchers and they were reporting their findings in the data. And I was like, wait, this is research? It wasn't even like numbers when I thought of data, I thought of numbers. It's like, wait, <laughs> this is this is so cool being able to take concepts and you know build themes from that and you know just that gave us information that we could use moving forward i was like wow so sometimes i think that even how we interpret the language that is being used can kind of be a hindrance because like i said it seems so big a clinical trial i don't think I don't think it's something I'm supposed to be a part of, but it also doesn't sound like something I want to be a part of. A clinical trial, like, what is that? So thank you for this opportunity to be able to sit down and discuss, like, break this down a little bit, because I know it's not just me out here thinking like this. Yeah, um, can, I, can I say a little bit about that, too? Absolutely. About the diversity of research. I'm so glad you brought that up, Cece, because I, I don't do drug trials, like I don't do studies that look at medicine. So I do what's called social science research. And that research is often asking questions and gathering people's stories and sharing their stories. So we did a study um, recently with um, Black trans women living with HIV about what they wanted to see in HIV cure research. So we did research about research. And it was basically talking to people for an hour, hour and a half, collecting their stories, pulling them together and understanding what some of the common messages were, and then trying to share those messages with people who do research. And that was research too. And we've done clinical trials where the, the thing that we were providing people wasn't medicine or a shot, but it was something like, we're doing a study now where we're offering small grants to people to see if getting a small grant will help people um, have better mental health or help them be more likely to use PrEP or a condom. And those are clinical trials. 
and the person participating doesn't have to necessarily take a new medicine or anything like that. So thank you for raising that, that there's all kinds of research and it's not all numbers and it's not all medicine. Oh, so somebody put me on blast in the comment section here. So let's see. Cece is a co-investigator on a couple research projects around breastfeeding and HIV. And Bridget is the lead for the Well Project's engagement in HIV cure research. Very exciting and also needs to ensure this is happening across the board at the national level. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is so, I feel like a little nerdy right now. I don't know. It's, I'm really engaged. So, um, <laughs> excuse me. Speaking of Bridget, she also had a comment, a question. She said, a basic rundown of the types of research that exists for the general layperson would be nice. So we've done it already. Um, for example, we may know about medication trials and cure research, but what other types are there? So I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, will there ever be a time that we don't lean so heavily on research done in and statistics from other countries? Mm. <laughs> uh, I have mixed feelings about that, to be honest. You didn't ask me about my feelings, but I'm going <laughs> to share my feelings. I'm here um, for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One side of me feels like, you know, we are the dividing lines between countries were instituted by people who are not us, right? So they're not, we are all people and we happen to live in different places in the world, right? So I don't think any place in the world should mean that somebody's excluded from research. At the same time, there is a long history of exploiting different communities, both globally and in the US, using the data or information gathered and then not having it come back and benefit those communities or those countries. And that is exploitation and unfair. And I, I don't know if that was what was behind that, that comment or that question, um, but it, it's problematic. And I think there are ways to do research that is community engage, engaged no matter where it is and making sure that the communities who participate in the research benefit from the findings from that research. Yeah, I didn't even consider that um, this this sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> um, Bridget, she was going more in a direction. Thank you for that. But she says, like, for example, most of the research on a woman and girls comes out of Africa. Is mm -hmm. that due to a lack of participants in the United States? That's Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so this is where I'm going to get into areas where I don't know a whole lot because it's about statistics and I do not statistics research mostly. Okay. Um, but a lot of the research that's done around HIV prevention in particular, their outcome is the number of people who they can um, protect from getting HIV. And luckily for us, and I don't think it's luck, I think it's we live in a rich country, um, <laughs> even though we may not be rich. Um, there are not, quote unquote, enough women who acquire HIV in the U.S. every year for there to be um, a study that could have that outcome. Right. So they need to do their research in a place where there are a lot. There is a lot higher risk of acquiring HIV. And in many African countries, that is the case. 
And that is why a lot of the research happens there. Um, I have also feelings about that, that I think there's a long history of like colonialism and um, extraction of resources and maltreatment. And that's the reason we see these differences. Um, but that's why a lot of these studies are done in Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, thank you for bringing it up, Bridget. And thank you for answering, Sonia, because I hadn't even considered that. Uh, but then I'm like, well, look, there is a study that was doing, done in Africa, and this is what the study says. And they're like, well, that's over there. But I'm like, well, can we get the information for over here then? Like, what? This is all that we have to go off of at this moment. And it just seems to be, I don't know, where is the balance? Where is, I don't know, this isn't my field. I'm just going to keep going on with the question. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let's see. We spoke a little bit about the populations, the specific populations of women who have been particularly marginalized and excluded from HIV research. I heard you bring up um, a population earlier, women who sell sex. Like, why would a population like that, like what influences why they would be left out of research? That is a great question. Um, there are not rules around um, not including women who sell sex, but I think researchers don't ask those kinds of questions and they don't reach into communities, neighborhoods, social networks where there are women who sell sex. And it's weird, right? Because you mentioned studies in other countries, many studies in other countries are specifically designed for women who sell sex because those women are often very vulnerable to mistreatment because sex work is not legal and they can't go to the police if somebody does something to them to get um, any sort of justice. Um, and so those studies are done often in, in other countries, but in the US we act like there's no women who sell sex, so we don't need to do studies to understand <laughs> their experience of living with HIV, their ability to get medications, what medications work best um, for people um, in communities where there's a lot of sex work, for example. And it's, I, I think it's inappropriate. We have to make sure that HIV research is appropriate for everybody. We, I mean, we, we just do. Um, there are some researchers who focus on women who sell sex and trying to make sure that we understand what it is that women who sell sex need in order to be able to access the best HIV prevention and care services. But there's not a lot of people doing that work. I'm thinking of how easily it could, how easy it could be for a researcher's biases or own morals to come into play you know, mm -hmm. during these studies. <clears throat> is that what the purpose of the internal review board is? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called, uh, I think it's Institutional Review Board. Some people oh, okay. call it the Ethical Review Board. It has different names depending on where you are. Um, thank you for raising that. The purpose of those boards is supposed to be to make sure that the research is ethical, meaning that it protects the participant, that they're not, that processes are in place to make sure that people who take part in the study do so voluntarily because they want to, they're not being coerced into it. 
that the study itself has a greater possibility for benefit than it does harm to people and that there's not people being exploited as part of the research study. So it's designed to protect, in theory, to protect people. Sometimes it can be a barrier, right? Because there's extra levels of um, that they call protection that have to be in place for what's considered vulnerable populations. And often that's young people, pregnant people, people who are incarcerated in jail or prison. There's additional steps um, that researchers have to go through to make sure that those folks are protected if they take part in research. And often researchers don't want to do that. It makes sense. More hoops and hurdles they have to go through. I'm sorry, the more we talk, my voice is just disappearing. <laughs> <No more>. Um, <laughs> let's say, how do deficits in HIV research among women impair the overall HIV response? Mm, yeah, so, <laughs> so much. Like I mentioned, women are half the population. Women are more than one in five of the people living with HIV. Um, and if we are going to follow this national plan to, you know, end the HIV epidemic by 2030, we can't leave out one in five people living with HIV. We're just not going to be able to get there. So I think it's impossible to achieve the goals that we have around HIV if we don't do a better job of including women. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> I'm looking at Bridget going off in the comment section. <laughs> I love Bridget. <laughs> she said, that is part of why research with women is so frustrating. This pick and choose which space or country the research is relevant is so annoying. And then Olivia was like, yes. And responses around what relevance looks like is very vague. Then Michelle was like, that's awesome, Bridget. Please attend the community men meetings. I'm working on attending. So I think even that is a part of it. Like the, the meetings might not necessarily be the research, but I feel like those are spaces where you'll find out, you know, you're more in the know of what's going on when you show up to different spaces. You're around other people who are like able to network and, you know, extend what your knowledge base would have been. So yes. I need to work on getting to some meetings too, Michelle. Thank you. Um, Let's not downplay what you offer too. Like you might learn something while you're there, but you also will teach people things they hadn't thought about. Mm -hmm. so your experience is valuable as well as what you learn. Wow. Thank you for setting that straight. You're right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Um, for a very long time, going back to a point that was made earlier of, lived experience, being experienced, like didn't know how valuable it was. I did not know that, you know, my voice or the voices of those around me mattered that much. Like just to be able to get someone to listen and to see that using your voice can actually help evoke change has been life-changing for me. So oh, I'm so excited about all of this. Let's say Maria, she had something to say. What can we expect 
When can we expect research for long-term survivors with medication resistance so that there are more options available? I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> but that's certainly something you can advocate for and fight for and yeah. I think Michelle's having meetings, it looks like. Michelle Lopez is like, come to the meeting. <laughs> um, Marie further went on to say, why are we still not included in the research for our ARVs? I don't expect you to have answers. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> or has this changed? I've boarded up for years and I get a yes, you are right. And then anatomically, our, bottom, our bodies are different. Anatomically, I don't know that word. I'm not even going to keep acting like that. You just said it. You said it perfectly. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Our bodies are different. So we talked about that a little earlier too. Um, I mean, we keep talking about it. The importance of women and the importance of studying women in all populations of women. Because yes, we have needs that need to be addressed and we need the research. Um, Michelle said, it's being allowed. That's why. I wish I could read with as much attitude as I'm reading. <laughs> yeah, no, but she's right. Like <laughs> the National Institutes of Health funds most of the research. They pay for most of the research that happens in this country and probably throughout the world. And there is a section when you apply for money to do a research study from the National Institutes of Health, there's a section that you have to write called inclusion of women and minorities, I think they call. And you have to explain how you've included women and people of color. Um, and if you haven't, you have to explain why you haven't. But there's not really, I've never seen accountability to that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you have to put it in your application and then you have to report on who you've enrolled, but I've never even heard of anybody having being said, oh, you put this in your application, but this is what happened. And so, how are you going to fix it? I think having some real level of accountability for that would be a game changer. I'm learning so much today. Oh my goodness. Wait, the Well Project, we just saw a new HIV prevention drug get approved in cisgender men and transgender women, but not cisgender women. This is just in the past couple years. There needs to be accountability. Um, Olivia's comment. That's real. Read learning and also sharing and teaching. So much. Uh -oh, I don't know what happened there. I don't like that. <laughs> oh, it's really that, close now. <laughs> that's even better. Wait, there we go. <laughs> so much around research is at these extremes of extractive and exploitative participation and total exclusion under the guide of protection. And being in a room, one has to either be in a learning posture or in some position to instruct. But it can be both nuance and go on and on. Yes, yes, yes. Thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Olivia, for that. So I am going to go into the next point. How should we address the challenges that we've talked about here today? I think this is a great start. Um, you know, the Well Project and WRI and PWN and probably other organizations I'm forgetting about right now because I'm anxious and, and being recorded. Um, <laughs> they, 
the access to their information and how to reach them is publicly available. You can get involved and take action. You can protest, you can write letters, you can um, work with other people to make change. And there's a lot of people on this list of in the chat that I know have been game changers and activists and moved the research and also the care of women living with HIV forward. And so there's a lot of expertise just in this, you know, virtual room of people who know how to make change. And persistence, you mentioned like things take a long time. And I know I'm a, I'm not a patient person. I've been working on that <laughs> trait for a long time. Um, but being persistent, just not letting people get away with it and just continuing to advocate. And then getting into positions of power yourself if you can. Get on that board. Be part of the decision making. Yes, yes, yes. I love the like it sounds so empowering. Like, get on that board. Like, how do I get on that board? I want to know about the board. <laughs> so thank you. It does. I, I when I was given birth, they came in and asked if I wanted to be a part of a study. Because I had heard of the importance of them, it made me listen to the lady a little more carefully this time. I didn't just shoo her away. I didn't wasn't just, you know, another person coming into the room. I wanted to know what the study was for and you know, what are y'all looking for? How is this gonna help other people? Because I think understanding with research it, it probably is not going to benefit you yourself. Like you're already in the situation, but it could benefit someone coming after me. At least that's how I look at it. And then when they start talking the composition piece, and I'm always one, I'm going to open my mouth because a lot of times what we are compensated for in these and what is required of us is not enough. And I'm not a person who is motivated by money, but when I take into consideration what you need me to do in exchange for this $50 gift card, maybe sometimes I can remember, you know, times where I was working hourly and $50 was five hours worth of work. And you're making me miss work, all of my money, <laughs> you know, to be a part of this this research. So I think definitely designing research studies with the people in mind that you're serving from the beginning, which instead implementing, you know, bringing people who are living the, living the experience up on board. I think that those are great um, ways to address the challenges. Are there any tools available? I don't, I, I know that we've mentioned other folks' resources and tools, but like, are there any tools available to help us adjust what we've talked about today? Any more that you can think of? Hmm, tools. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I was like, can I respond to what you just said? I was just thinking Absolutely. about the section piece um, because I do think that that's really important. And part of the history of um, research being mostly done with relatively well-off like white men is that there's this notion that that research is volunteerism and i agree with that and that nobody should be forced to participate in research obviously but along with that came this notion that therefore people are volunteers and shouldn't really be paid 
they should be like a token of appreciation, which is how it ends up being such a small amount of money. And I know a lot of people are pushing back on that and about um, and trying to talk to these ethical review boards about how really important it is to compensate people appropriately for what they're doing. And they institutional review boards will come back and say, oh, well, that amount of, of compensation is coercive. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's compensation. People can say yes or no to it. But th that is one of the reasons that researchers, often if we want to compensate more, have to be in a battle with people to be able to do that because they consider it coercive. So if one tool may be getting on an institutional review board, if there's a university that is near you, all universities that do research have to have an institutional review board and they have should have a website about that institutional review board and they have to have community members on that review board being able to help make those kinds of decisions. Their compensation is often an afterthought in the budgeting process, Krista says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it makes me feel good that there is actually someone advocating for somebody else, you know, someone in your position advocating for, you know, someone in the community or that could be a part of this, you know, about the money that we receive, because sometimes it doesn't feel like Okay, it's a token, and it makes me have to look at it a little bit different, but still, for what I have to go through to do it, like, I don't want no darn token. <laughs> well, that's such a privileged position, right? Like, everybody's just wandering around, able to volunteer, and it doesn't have any financial consequences, so we just give them this little token of appreciation. That's not true. Like you said, you have to miss a whole day of work. What does that mean for your financial situation? That's not just like you're lounging at home eating bonbons and you're just going to go by and... <laughs> Darn token. Right. Um, <laughs> I like um, Olivia Hicks. If we could talk about community based participatory research, I don't know what it is. Ah, I bet you do. <laughs> um, community based participatory research is research that is done in partnership with people from the community most impacted by the research from the beginning. So it means that the research happens in a community and that the, that's the community-based part. And then the participatory means like real participation. There's a range, right? Like I think many studies now have community advisory boards. And I would say that's probably the minimal level of community participation. But then there's, like you said, hiring people to be on the research team. There's talking to people before you even apply for money, making sure they're included in the grant application so that there's funding, money, when you get it set aside for community organizations or people living in the community to help design the research question, to help collect and understand the data. Because often what happens in research, people might ask the right questions if they listen to the community, but then they get the answers and they don't know what they mean, right? Like we always have to interpret what those numbers mean or even what those words mean. And I know it's been super helpful to me always when I'm like, I don't understand what's happening right here. And then somebody who is more impacted by whatever issue I'm studying will be like, well, of course, because blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I never thought about that because I think as Bridget said, lived experience is important experience for understanding research findings as well as asking the right questions. Okay. So maybe I did know what that was kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to go back to Krista's point. Um, she said, it is important for any of us who 
are not living with HIV and are being asked to be a part of any of these tables to ensure that women living with HIV are at the table. Tonya is an amazing example of inclusivity in her research projects. That's so, great. like, how are you successful at that? Like, what? I'm I'm just going to assume you're implementing these things that you've been suggesting the whole while. But, like, are you going out into these communities and recruiting people? Are you sending other folks to the researchers? Look like, you know, the people that are being researched. How are you so successful at this? Well. <laughs> I hadn't expected that question. Um, this is the answer is, I don't know if it's going to be satisfactory, but I try to just be like authentic and honest about whatever I'm doing and asking people to do. Um, I, especially as a cisgender person who does a lot of research with transgender people, I never just arrive in a community and be like, hey, you want to be in this study? I try to like What's ha what is happening in the community that I can participate in and contribute to? What is important to the people? You know, I moved to North Carolina four years ago. Um, so one of the first things I did is try to find out like where it where where are the organizations that provide services and are run by trans people? What do they need and how can I contribute from where I sit to their mission? And that informed what I thought about as appropriate research questions. And I think it made the research topics more you know, inviting and appropriate to ask people to participate in. So I think you have to be something we're not good at is being patient, taking your time, building relationships, demonstrating that you're trustworthy and moving forward from there. I don't think there's a fast way to do it, but there's often pressure on researchers to do things fast. Now, that looks so different in my head. Like, you know, a person has come and tried to get to know me and those things that are important to me first and then coming to us. Maybe then the token doesn't feel so bad. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? It doesn't because we have this relationship and I understand the bigger goal or the bigger, bigger mission. But when folks are just popping in, you know, and I need something from you and then <laughs> it does... It comes off differently. Um, let's see, Michelle. Dr. Anjali Sharma at Einstein is doing that with those of us willing to participate in scientific work groups and development committees. Okay. Mm -hmm. Michelle, you seem like you got a lot of experience in this. I would love to pick your brain. Um, like Krista said... Krista's trying to walk us into more work. She just said it could be important for us to build a database of community members interested in participating in research. Another project for the Well Project team, LOL. <laughs> no, it's totally doable. So um, there is the, can I talk about breast cancer for a second? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> so um, I think it's the Susan Love Foundation has, um, is a big organization that's was started by a, a doctor who um, does research and provides care for women with breast cancer. And she started this thing that used to be called the, the Army of Women and is now called the Love Research Army, which is basically if you are interested in participating in breast cancer research, you can like sign up, they ask you a bunch of questions, and then you're in this database and they vet researchers. So if some if I'm a researcher and I want to do a study and I want access to the people who've signed up as being interested, they were like, 
you have to send them your study design and your protocol, what you're going to do. And they have a community board that looks at it and says, okay, this is appropriate and not exploitative. And they'll ask for changes if they want it. And then they send it out to the people on this list or say, hey, anybody interested in this? Right. And they have, you know, I think over 30,000 people. So it's totally doable. And I'm on, I'm part of that database. I don't, I'm not a person with breast cancer, but they need both people who are, who have had breast cancer and people who haven't. And I love it. I get their like weekly things about the different studies and they try to make sure they only send things that you might be eligible for. And I think it's something the World Project could do or WRI could do. That would be really awesome. So you wouldn't have to ask, how do I get involved in research? There'd be this database you could sign up for, and then they could send you opportunities. Um, and then they make their money by charging researchers for access to um, sharing their invitations to take part in research. So don't get me excited. I'm, I'm super excited about doing something like that. No, you literally like jumped out of your seat. I was like, no, we're in her lane. <laughs> okay, I'll calm down. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. Michelle's trying to find the funding right now in the comment section. Okay. She said, <laughs> this it. is an initiative for the Well Project. Funding is out there. Um, yes. Then we had another the Well Project comment. Um, can you also talk about the importance of researchers representing populations they serve? For example, women-led research, Black women-led research, trans-led research. Yeah. So many thoughts about that. A lot of it, I know that I have a different expectation when I'm talking to somebody who looks like me or has some of my same lived experiences than when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't. And I think that's just how it is, right? So showing up um, and having people who look like your community or from your community or have a shared experience makes it more likely that 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 you'll trust that person, right? And also means that you've had experience that you have a better sense of the kinds of research questions to ask and what not to ask. I've sometimes been shocked, you know, I'm a cis person and I do research with trans communities, so I don't represent those communities. Um, and I'm a big supporter of trans-led research and I feel like I can step back, you know, <laughs> if they don't need me to do that research and I'm out of here, but I also can partner with people and bring expertise if they want that or need that. Um, I, I think studies that are, I've seen a lot of studies around health equity around race where there aren't black people or other people of color on the research teams. And sometimes how they ask those questions and how they interpret the answers to those questions are problematic in my opinion. And if those studies are led by people who have that experience, I think there's a different way of thinking about the questions that need to be asked and how they what the answers mean. I don't know if that was too vague. I don't want to call out anybody. <laughs> so. No, I appreciate it. I think it did answer the question. I, I always think of day. It makes me, when I was having a baby, I had like three doctors walk into the room. It was two young black girls and like a young Asian girl. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, thank y'all so much. It was just a different feeling. It just, it, we could have had nothing in common, but everything in common at the same time. I just felt 
more at ease and not to say that, you know, I don't want to be served by anybody else. It's just a certain, like, I can relate to you. There's this culture. There's this, I could, okay. And, you know, they might get that, you know, versus if someone else had walked in a room. So, yeah, thank you. And World Projects, thank you for such your thoughtful response. Um, Michelle said, Tonya, you thought taught us so much back in the day, I still put it to use. So obviously you got some folks that you've been with for a long time. 25 years is a long time though. So thank you for your work. I think, um, is there anything else that the audience wants to make sure that we touch on while we're still getting comments and questions? And I wanna remind everyone of our two minute survey. The link is in the comments. It'll pop back up on the screen in a moment. But please take a moment to complete that. That ensures that we continue to, you know, create programs and talk about things that the community wants to talk about or that is of importance. Thank you. Um, Bridget says, your willingness to recognize that distinction, i.e. cis versus trans, is so important. It is all too common that there are men, cis white men in these spaces that think they know it all. I love that you involved the community. Thank you for that, Bridget. I think it's so important to have some humility and recognize that you don't know everything. I think that can be hard for some people, um, but thank you. I try. Olivia. Truth, CC, my black OB surrounded me with all these magical black residents during my labor. It felt like it was just for me. Like, that's what it feels like. That is what it feels like. Well, I think my voice has had enough. I think my brain is exploding with all of these. Like, I want to go to clinicaltrials.gov now to see if there's anything that, you know, <laughs> pops out to me. Thank you. Um, if you don't have anything more to add, if there are no more comments from the audience. I want to thank everyone for joining us for our 26th episode of A Girl Like Me Live. It's been so good to share this space with you. And I hope to see you all again in the next month. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. And thank you, The Well Project, for all that you do. Yes. Thank you. Bye.